Okay, so here we go for the third episode of the Mountain Ground Podcast. Uh, myself, Nicolette, and our new addition to the Mountain Abandoned team, the Dexa Phoenix, or the Dex Dog. You can also follow your Dex on old Instagram, you know, Dex Dog Runs. <laughs> so we're sitting here at Silver Streams campsite in Underberg. Uh, I did a very, very like a run up to Matu Pass today. Nick did a very long training run of herself. And um, yeah, we've got Frederick on board. We've got Peter all the way in from Ireland. He's also on board today. So it's the full, full, full house. Uh, very excited for today. Uh, topics seem quite to be, yeah, quite exciting, actually. The Gegrond guys, Frederick, Peter, they're going to be talking about extraction with coffee. And uh, I've got a lot to learn there, I'm sure. And then uh, myself and Nicolette will talk a bit about, you know, if you have to be extracted off the mountain. <laughs> and also what we would like to cover if we have time is uh, how can you extract the most from your training? So, um, yeah, off to Peter. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> firstly, I just, I just want to, as always, emphasize that, you know, always when you have a chat with you guys, we're, we're a bit jealous, you know, just uh, knocked off from a day shift here in the office. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind trading in my <laughs> my daily office for, for a bit of an adventure there in Bushman's Neck. And uh, yeah, welcome to, to Dex here, to the family. We can, uh, we can definitely do a bit of a podcast with uh, some of his own adventures. Uh, and I'm sure like on Instagram, I think uh, he brought us, I think it was the second episode. I think we did a social media post of Dex bringing the uh, second episode of the Mountain Band podcast. So, uh, so yeah, I hope you guys have a great week ahead of you, and um, you know that uh, you share those adventures with, with um, you know us sitting here and just daydreaming for the weekend to come. So uh, yeah, enjoy. So I think. Yeah, it's like Chris said, we're going to talk a bit about extraction. Um, I mean, by now, you know, we have a general theme, which is, you know, the extraction of coffee. Now, we've discussed different variables that you can adjust to extract your coffee. Uh, last week, I had a bit of a chat on the on the grind. So <laughs> I, I think I got a few times the grind and ground and all the rest wrong or right but um you know i think the point was just depending on how coarse you grind your coffee you know it, it alters uh, extraction and you know we had used the example about like a fizzy uh, like drink or not fizzy drink but basically like a, a what can we say Peter, help me out here <laughs> it's going to it's like a tablet that you're dissolving in water and you know you break it up in little pieces and and all the rest so you can listen to the previous one if if, if you might have missed that so um today we're going to chat about you know the time that you actually you know uh extract the coffee with i think is the right right english here uh, for all those out there i am an afrikaans guy so <laughs> this is this is definitely not my uh, my first language, but I here in Ireland I have adjusted a bit. Um, so you know, and I think we're going to just discuss the main methods of extracting coffee. You know, the the type of tools and kit and equipment most of us have at home, and um, you know, I think I think what is important is as we go through them and how long it takes to extract the coffee just keep in the back of your mind also what we discussed last week is how fine the grind of the coffee is so i mean if it takes say for espresso so espresso is basically 
you know, 23 seconds extraction. And, you know, we've, as we said last week, that's pretty much your finest grind that you'll find. And um, basically, uh, if your, your espresso is more than, say, 23 to 25 uh, seconds, then it means that you've grinded your coffee a bit more on the fine side, so it's too fine. And then you can go, you can basically, you know, just grind your coffee a bit coarse. Um, and then we have a very interesting one, which is the French press. Now, I know lots of people have a French press back at home, you know, <laughs> especially if there's a few visitors, get out the French press. And, you know, it's almost like with the least amount of effort, you get the most cups of coffee. Um, so, you know, with the French press, I think there's a perception that the French press should be a very bitter type of coffee. And, I, th you know, and... And I do find that, you know, when you get kairing, you forget that the French press is still extracting. And what happens is after eight or nine minutes, then you remember, you know, you still have a French press that's in the background. So, um, you know, and then by that time, it's, it's well over extracted. So for the French press, we have this golden rule that you're actually only looking for four minutes. Then you basically should be pouring the cup of coffee for your guests. So after three and a half minutes, you know, you should really be be pushing down the French press and um, you know that's basically four minutes you start pouring that coffee okay so um, and then you know on the other extreme well before let's before we go to the other extreme let's just go to a v60 so v60 uh, which is a pour over type of coffee so again like we have this golden rule of say three minutes three minutes 30 okay so that's generally when all when you've basically finished your pause you want all the the um, water to be in your cup so nothing should be at the top and your coffee grind should be basically i don't know how do we put this <laughs> frederick how do we put this it should be visible um and you know from there obviously you start altering it to taste and i'm going to end this by you know by just saying that last week we said if your coffee is too bitter then you should maybe consider grinding it to coarse and now i'm going to give you guys something else and that is if your coffee is leaning more towards the bitter end and you know use these these basically three guidance or you know time parameters to set you know to to, to see if if you alter those to either shorter or, or longer if that doesn't improve your coffee flavor so if it's too bitter still you're extracting it too long try and shorten your time that you're extracting the coffee with and if it's more on the soury notes then it might be that it's way too um too short uh sorry it's yeah it's way too short and you might consider just leaving it a bit longer and once you hit that sweet spot you can basically finesse your brew according to your preference so i think that's uh yeah i think that's basically it on the time i mean you know something like cold brew i always bring up the cold brew because we started out as a cold brew company but you know that's that's a completely different animal because cold brew takes 15 to 17 hours to extract and actually the the way it extracts is a bit different when you add when you don't add heat so i'm not going to delve into that too much um, but just for those interested out there, you know, cold brew, 15, 17 hours for, for that extraction. I mean, like, you know, if, I'm sure that extraction would be... 
Hilfsbier. <lacht> yeah, sorry. So we, ha we have one question, Peter. Oh, we sorry. have a, an espresso machine and I think you said maximum 20 seconds pour. Is that right? You, for an espresso machine? Yeah, so the golden, that golden spot that you're looking for is about 23 seconds uh, for, for a double espresso. Um, so yeah, so you're looking about for 23 to 25 seconds. And then from there you'd start and to. And can you also can you also judge judge it by the color of the coffee that's coming through? I think I recall reading something yeah. once about when your coffee is no longer running like nice and dark and it starts to look a little bit watery. That's also an indication that you might be then over extracting. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. No, you 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 bang on there. Um, you know, like obviously Pierre has. Uh, I don't know if you also joined that barista course Pierre was mentioning last time, but uh, no, that's that that's spot on. Like you can usually judge when the extraction has reached its saturation, based on you get basically you know you have this golden syrupy type of um, I don't know what to what to rainfalls. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the right word, yeah. Not rainforest, <laughs> but basically, um, I don't know. Like you know, like as it goes down, it, it's basically it looks quite syrupy and golden, and um, you know, as soon as that uh, that color starts to become a bit dis becomes delusional, then um, sorry, it becomes blonde almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then, then yeah, you know we that got. The, but I remember in the uh, yeah, in, in the um that barista course, obviously they focused on um basically the the espresso machine, and yeah, they spent a lot of time just talking about you know obviously if you extract too short, then it's going to be very acidic because the sugars haven't you know been able to caramelize etc etc but they were going like 25 to 28 and some bar baristas would do it shorter some would do it longer but it all depended on how dark the roast was and how you know coarse the grind or fine the grind and that's what i liked so much about coffee i was immediately like infatuated because it's not just your current action that has an effect on your coffee it is like you know how was it roast or where's the bean from how's it roasted how was it grinded and then how are you now basically extracting the coffee and that's just there's such a multifaceted kind of industry or whole complex procedure and that's why why i was completely mm. captured by it and i really love these kind of chats yeah and i think you know like 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 you say pierre it's you know there's so many elements to it and i think you know if i can give everyone anyone a tip out there find almost like find a pin one variable in the ground you know and as soon as you've done that you know you change the rest to hit one variable and once you've basically hit that um that target then i think then you know that you know like say for example you know if your extraction was a bit on the short side you can alter your your grind and um yeah so so i agree with you like there's so many new facets and you know it does become quite involved when it comes to you know if it's if it's a if it's a natural processed coffee and if it's for example a washed coffee and um you know that that definitely has an impact um so you know that might be something we can have a chat on is how your your coffee your 
drying of your coffee or your processing of your coffee actually impacts you know those those type of extractions etc um Friedrich, so you were going to say something there yeah no, what i wanted to say is that every like pierre says um every part of the coffee chain has a massive influence in your cup like the way they process it depends on it, it differs the how sweet your cup is or the, the flavor that you would pick up and probably um, way more variables as well but then when it comes to roasting roasting the coffee correctly is is another incredibly difficult task to do um, because you you get different processes processed coffee and coffee growing at different uh, altitudes the coffee that you get to roast is, is so completely different it's there's no um, straight rule of how to roast it and with that, it comes down to the brewing. There's no straight rule of how to brew it, because the lighter the lighter you roast, the more, the denser the coffee still is. The darker you roast, the the more brittle and porous the coffee becomes. And and all of that you need to keep in mind when when brewing. Um, you know, I think that makes it quite quite interesting, but also quite. Uh, I think it may it makes it uh, daunting. <laughs> for people that don't really know anything about coffee to start brewing coffee from bean. But I guess that's why that's why it's good that we have this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, so just yeah. another question to you guys mm. to you guys at Grunt, if you don't mind. Um we have a Bialetti, I think it's mocha pot Bialetti, it's just the brand. Um, and oftentimes you find people that leave this uh, mocha pot spluttering away <laughs> on the stove for about, you know, five minutes or so. That's my pet peeve. <laughs> <laughs> after, after we think it's, it's been ready. So just with regards to the mocha pot, when it starts to push through coffee, how long are you looking for that to run through? And should it be filling your mocha pot or is it, you know, halfway, three quarters? Just some, what are the guidelines with regards to the mocha pot? I would say, yeah, so, <laughs> go for it. I would say, yeah, personally, I'm not as sure as to how long it should, uh, should take to boil through. But I know as soon as it's done boiling, you should immediately get it off and, and get the bottom part of the bialet into cold water to stop the flow of, of the steam. Otherwise, you're just going to scorch the beans and um, yeah, it's going to ruin the whole the whole reality. Yeah, I think so. To add to Frederick, I think... Yeah, so what I got... Yep, yeah. Nice. Okay, so what I got, because I did ask... Uh, a lady with the one that I did the barista course with because I asked okay cool we've done the espresso machine now but none of us really own you know 60 grand worth of espresso machine I just use a Bialetti and how do I actually you know do it properly because I also thought you know because I'm a bit of a miser and I thought like if I only wanted like half cup then I you know I knew put half the amount of coffee in the basket and I know a lot of people do this as well and she just laughed and she said no 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 you need to get the right size Bialetti for your purpose and then you fill it, obviously, the basket. You know, you don't compress, like, tamp it, but you do just fill it. And then she said, if you can aim for, so you want to use boiling water, and if then you, if you can aim for an extraction period of about 50 seconds to 60 seconds, 
your coffee should be pushed through. So if you don't get that right, you should just alter your temperature. Um, and then, yes, what Frederick said there, the moment you're happy with the extraction, basically you need to get it into cold water, the base of the Bialetti, to, to make it stop. Because otherwise you get a very like watered down, almost like acidic um, kind of taste sometimes. So it's only later that I started playing around with the, the coarseness and everything of the grind. But that's what I liked about what Peter said earlier. It's not just like, you know, just don't change everything. You just make like small measure changes. Like in, in aviation or in flying, we always, you never wanted to make big intercept angles. You know, if you wanted to intercept a track, you were off track by say 20 degrees. You know, when you re-intercept, you try to make one big change. And then from there, you judge where you are. And from there, you can then make small measured changes. So you don't want to change everything every time because then you kind of don't know where you're shooting, you know. So if you make a change and then you just alter like grind size and then the next time you alter extraction time, I think then you could probably get where you want to get eventually. Yeah, I mean, uh, talking about going off course. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I did a... I did a bit of a run here in Ireland and I thought I might, based on our previous podcast where, you know, uh, I think it was Nicolette who said, leave a bit the GPSs and the garments and everything at home. I went um, and I did a bit of a, a run based on, you know, just just general sense of direction. And eventually when I went completely off course, I, uh, you know, I <laughs> I called it quits and pulled up my old trails map and just to try and orientate where I am at the moment. And, um, you know, like it's it's definitely, you know, it does make you think if things go go wrong on that mountain and you and, you know, like luckily here in Ireland, the weather is fairly, you know, it does rain a lot, but it's fairly stable. But I, you know, from from the few times that I've been to the Berg, it can quickly change. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, I, what would you, have you guys ever experienced that where, you know, either you needed to get mountain rescue out or, you know, you got caught into a, in a storm and, you know, how do you handle those situations? Yeah, for sure. It's a, a very real possibility for us every time we go out into the Drakensberg here. Um, we had a specific incident. We were on the DGT, the Grand Traverse route, and we were heading for Tabana Ntlenyana, the highest peak in southern Africa, specifically in Lesotho. And we were just complete white out, a massive storm, and there was thunder and lightning on the peak itself, so there was no ways we were going to go up there. And we had to head for the escarpment, and you're about 10 k's deep into Lesotho, so we couldn't uh, backtrack on the, the good trail that had come off the escarpment about 20 kilometers back. We just had to turn kind of 90 degrees and head straight for the escarpment. And we were just looking for lower altitude and South African terrain. So what we did in that, that case was uh, self-extraction and our map saved us. We were able to locate ourselves with our GPS location and... Um, kind of figure out what was our closest pass and we just hit a river and we we tracked along that for for about eight kilometers um but it was quite scary um but that was that wasn't a good example of a self-extraction fortunately we haven't had to call in mountain rescue but Pierre's going to give us a a bit of a breakdown on 
what the procedure is if you do have an emergency where you're not able to self-extract or maybe there's an injury or illness and you have to get mountain rescue involved. Okay, just on that uh, note when Nicolette talked about where we had to get ourselves out of Lesotho there. Um, just, it also doesn't just happen, you know, you decide, okay, cool, I don't want to be here where I am anymore because stuff has just gone a bit pear-shaped. Um, you know, it did take us quite a while in like pouring rain and we had to like, go up a river, like a tributary for like a K to actually cross a river safely, um, get to the escarpment eventually and the passes, the water was flowing down the pass as if it was a river. So you're not even sure if it is a pass. And then we just kept on checking our coordinates, making sure where we are on the map. And then eventually we had to get down, but we also only got down to about two and a half thousand meters because all the tributaries and everything is flowing into the rivers. So the rivers were just so swelled. And then we still had to bivy the night up there and then got down the next day. So Sorry, it is very worth it to have the... Sorry, just, 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 just sorry yeah, for interrupting you there, but I just have a question. So when you're going down, do you avoid rivers or are you actually looking for rivers to get down the mountain? Sorry, Peter, just repeat that question. So, you know, when you need to quickly get off the mountain, uh, do are you actually looking for rivers to get down or do you actually in a situation where it's lots of rain, try and avoid uh, any rivers? Yeah, so look, that's one of my biggest, I'm not too fussed over lightning and thunder and that kind of stuff in the mountain, to be honest, because it's kind of like, it's very out of your control. Like I do try to get to lower altitude, etc. But when we do go down, that's why it was so, it took us so long to decide to actually go down. It was that Nkomadola pass. So we knew it was the pass. It just didn't look safe to go down almost just because there was so much water going down so flash flooding is something i'm very wary about in the mountains and um i always it's better than to try to maybe stay on a ridge when you can so we had to descend the pass for quite a bit in the pass itself and then when we could make our way out on the right hand side to a very good ridge then you are more out of that threat of you know being washed away so it's something to do keep in mind when you are coming down, like flash flooding and flooded rivers are quite a big thing. So you don't necessarily, so to get from Tabana kind of, we did use a river to help us track all the way to the escarpment. So the Lesotho section, but once we hit the escarpment, we had to use a pass to get down. But once we were able to get out of the pass and onto a ridge line, we could just move so much better and obviously where we buried the night was also not in the pass because obviously you could get washed away so we did end up like sleeping on a on high ground basically where we were sure we would be safe from a flash flood or anything um but these are all things we take into account and obviously with moving many years in the berg you know your decision making does get better and um but I think a basic thing, which I only learned way too late, um, is actually just the basics of, you know, if you are in trouble, obviously in the Berg, self-rescue is your first port of call. Um, you need to have the correct gear. You need to know where you are. You need to know how to navigate. You need to know how to get yourself off the mountain. If you are going into the mountains, you need to know how to get yourself out. But I'm 
every time I do go out there, I'm fully aware of the fact that something could happen, which will have me phoning the MC, you know, the mountain club guys, the, the mountain search and rescue. And luckily in South Africa, we have a very, very good um, search and rescue team. It's been head up by Gavin Robenheimer. He's been in charge of it for like 10 years, I think. And um, I've had, you know, I did my mountain guiding course with Gavin and I've done some guiding for, for him as well. So I've got vast amount of respect for his experience and the whole search and rescue team. Um, and the first thing is just to know kind of the basic procedures before you try to go all like intricate and all that stuff. So basically, if you just go on the MCSA KZN website and you go under, you know, basically mountain rescue, there's a whole procedure of what to do. The number you have to phone is there. Save it in your phone. Make sure everyone in your party knows how to, well, has the number itself and also knows how to access your phone because there's no point in, you know, your phone has the information on it, but no one knows how to unlock your phone, basically. Um, so it's 0800005133. And it's very important to say it's a mountain rescue. You'll see they put that there on the website as well. So if you're talking to the operator, don't just say like, oh, it's a rescue and I'm here because then they don't know it's a mountain rescue because otherwise they might just try and send an ambulance where in your situation, if you're on the escarpment, you need a helicopter. So it's very important to say it's a mountain rescue. Um, so yeah, like the guys have been operating since 1919. They work in combination with the police service and the air force. So it's basically specifically designed for high altitude mountain rescues in the Drakensberg. Now the rest of the country also has uh, mountain rescues. So you'll have the Cape Town section, the Hodentotoland section, the Eastern province, the KwaZulu-Natal where we are, and then Gauteng. Um, but basically have the number saved of your area and all of this you can find on the website. And just take down the number, it might really save you. So if if we were if we were sorry if we were to have um, uh, an emergency up in the Drakensberg, for example, how long could you expect to wait for a helicopter to reach you? Yeah, so basically, for them to scramble a helicopter, they need clearances, and a lot of stuff needs to happen there first. So basically, if you phone, you know, the ranger or the operator, and it gets activated. First, they need to also determine, is it like serious enough? You know, is it really life-threatening? Or is it, you know, you twisted your ankle and you want a helicopter? Because that's a completely different thing. But that is up to the mountain rescue guys to decide. Um, also, that is the importance of signing the mountain register when you, when you leave. So if you sign the mountain register and pay your hiking permit, that covers you for a mountain rescue. If you do not sign the mountain register and you do not pay for your permit they've got no obligation and they can also hold you financially liable for that rescue so look it's like 80 rand for the hiking permit and it, it's just good practice to sign the register so that people know where you are when are you expected back and um, that is also the case if you go out there for five days and you say told your mother that you are going to sms her every you know, evening and your phone dies. And now after the second night, she hasn't heard of you and she phones Mountain Rescue. If they look at the register and they say, well, you know, Pierre signed out for five days, 
this is only day two, he's not missing, then you can't, you know, kind of push them to go rescue that person because this person has said they are out for five days. So only when you are missing for 24 hours do they go out. But say if you are on the mountain and you did have an accident and you phone mountain rescue, um, they're also not going to be there within, you know, the next 20 minutes. They have to get the helicopters in Durban ready. From there, they go pick up the guys in Peter Maritzburg um, or where the volunteers are based. And from there, they'll get the equipment they need because they need to determine, you know, is there steep terrain? Where are you? All that kind of stuff. So they need to strategically think about this first. So they're not going to rush the process because there's also no point of them getting to you and now they don't have the correct equipment. So it's better for them to actually take their time, make sure that they've got everything ready, and then they'll set off for the Berg. Now, almost like wherever you are there, it's going to take about an hour and a half flying time if the weather is good. So the whole process, I'd say like four to six hours is kind of what I gathered, is what you can expect. Don't expect them to be there in an hour or two. So you have to also be able to make yourself comfortable for that four to six hours. Um, and if the weather is not good, they're not going to get in at all. Yeah, sorry, Pierre. I just have a burning question that I that I have. I mean, obviously, this is all dependent that you are able to phone Mountain Rescue. But, you know, like I've always struggled to get signal uh, on the Berg. So, you know, is there certain parts of the Berg that actually does have signal? And, you know, if you don't find signal, is it better to go for a high point or do you try and get off the Berg? What's the best? You know, if, if you need to make a bit of a, a gamble on where signal might or might not be, is it better to go up or down? I think that depends quite a lot on where you are um, in the Berg. So some of the high points do have signal. Unfortunately, it also depends somewhat on your service provider. So MTN seems to have better um, network in most of the Berg than Vodacom. But if you, you know, close to the top of a pass and you know that you're gonna be able to descend to the nearest hotel, for example, if you're a runner in two or three hours, you might be better going for that option than trying to look for a high point because in bad weather, even a high point might not provide um, sufficient signal to get hold of someone. But these are just some of the many factors that make a rescue in the Berg difficult because if you've got bad weather and you can't get signal, is a helicopter going to be able to reach you in any case? Um, so it really depends on where you are and how critical the, um, the casualty is, which is something else I just want to mention quickly from a medical point of view. If someone has a critical injury and you know they are at potential risk of of death you know the mountain rescue might not reach you in time and that's something they take into account you know they they perform rescues where they hope to get the patient out alive so they scramble medical personnel um, specifically to get someone out alive so so if you have a an emergency in the berg basically you need to prepare for a, a wait of about four to six hours in fair weather so you should be putting space blankets um, onto your patient, getting them out of the rain, out of the elements, giving them food, hot drinks, that sort of thing, and stabilizing them yourself because 
nine times out of ten mountain rescue won't be able to reach them in time to save them um, if they are that critical so you really need to even if you're not self-extracting you need to self um, like provide medical care and stabilize the patient yeah, so what's important there and i think it comes down to is if you move in the berg regularly just go do your first aid courses as well do all the way up to a level three first aid course because that might actually be the difference you know if there's a person in the group that's a doctor or first aid qualified they can actually just be the first response stabilize the casualty or the hiker and then you know we can then send someone else to try on a phone or something but the best is to stay where you are do not let everyone scramble off and go try phone people so obviously guys i guide in the berg a lot i have a spreadsheet of locations that i've tested over the years where i know i will get good signal um, but i will never leave someone that's not stable to try and get signal because i'll try to stabilize the person first and then it's also that's why it's never a good thing to go move up in the berg by yourself per se because this could just mean someone could help you or someone could go find help um, we do use uh, tracking devices as well and with that we can send messages and our location so when we do not have signal we could we can still send for help um, now that is also a whole like kind of worms on itself because like I have very specific procedures of how we operate the tracking device and we don't give the we don't give the information about it out to just anyone we have one person tracking us and only that person will f receive our SOS messages because I've given them a whole standard operating procedure of how to act because you don't want emotions to play a role there you know you don't want them to phone private medical aids and kind of wanting to get you know it can turn one rescue into three rescues if everyone is just phoning everyone you know if your mom your sister your dad and your uncle are all phoning different rescue organizations then it just becomes really messed up so basically to have a procedure in place that will streamline the whole process i think is key to just like think about it and yeah just put a plan in place Yeah, thanks. That's really, yeah, that's, that is definitely food for thought. Um, Derek, were you going to say something there? Yeah, no, I think it's it's quite valuable because we've been up in the berg quite a few times that you either almost, <clears throat> you, you're like just on the edge of an emergency and uh, it's like I, I'm one of those guilty ones that has never taken the number down <laughs> to begin with. But then even all the rest, um, just to think about that and keep it in account is, is yeah, it's uh, something that uh, easily passes your mind. Yeah, I would have definitely be one of the guys that uh, scrambles around and, <laughs> yeah, uh, so, so no, I think it's a good, it's a good point that you raised that, you know, maybe, you know, everyone should just stay together and, um, yeah, it's, uh, and it definitely gives that first aid course a bit of consideration. So, Pierre, just on that, so you've basically, once you've contacted Mint, uh, Mountain Rescue, you've stabilized the injured person 
is there anything else that 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 is of relevance after that or do you just make sure that you know like for example signaling mountain rescue is there something you can do to help them out or um... oh well you basically the important part now is they are going to ask you know obviously who you are who's the casualty maybe how critical it is and then important like where are you and then it is very important to also just be able to give them a really good description of where you are so say you are hiking from cathedral peak area and you went up the camel and uh, you slept in the roland cave and uh, you go cleft peak the next day going down seki seki or something just to know what area you are and if you can tell them okay an accident occurred between cleft and seki seki pass um we on the escarpment or we on the lower slope so i always have a I have a you know my sunto tells me my altitude you can even tell them the altitude but if you can just give them a best as possible description of where you are um, then they know where to look for you and um then it's kind of like what the, what will they ask you because if, if you've given them all your details of you know what pack are you and what pack are you wearing what colors do you have how many in your group you know it's also very important for them because this is also why the mountain register is so important because in the register you would have said you're a party of say four hikers uh two males two females you've got an orange tent and a green tent and your packs are xyz colored and you have warm gear, you have first aid, or you don't, because um, it's a vastly different approach. Like if you have no warm gear or a tent with you, well, now you're exposed, and then they really need to rush to get you. If you've got a tent, warm gear, food for, you know, you're on a three-day hike, but you've got food for five days, and you've got first aid kit with you, and cold weather gear, then, you know, you can really look after yourself there. And um, so it, it all this information is very important to put down in the register because that's where they can get it from. And then obviously when they talk to you, you can tell them where you are, what condition the patient is in. And from that, they can also gather like how much time do they have. So try to give as much relevant information as possible and not just, I guess, emotions <laughs> across, you know, like, it's it's it is something times a difficult thing but do get the person that's the most how can i say just the most to the point about all these things so i kind of like write things down i'll rather write it down and say okay it is this person this is their name this is their age this is where we are this is how critical it is and then you can just read it down from that because you just come across much clearer because they need to gather information from you to plan their um their mission if you want to call it that so those are just the um aspects you want to cover i guess no thanks Pierre. that's uh, nicolette thanks that's really yeah that's really insightful and uh, it definitely is a you know it's, it's food for thought so uh so thanks for sharing that uh guys we're running up at about 40 minutes now uh we just probably is a little bit less than so we are 37 38 minutes do you guys want to add more or should we maybe just wrap it up at this point 
No, I think on, um, we ended off on a quite a serious note there. So I think it will be best to leave it there. <laughs> and uh, next time, uh, everyone can look forward to how to extract the most from their training. <laughs> and we'll talk a bit more about athletic performance and training and um, leave the, the mountain rescues for a, for a while. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah serious, serious but very relevant topic, I must say. Fick, go for it. I have just a, a really quick one for, for when you guys are brewing your coffee um, to keep into consideration. I'll just I'll just kind of use espressos as a, a as a base, and then you can kind of derive from that what changes you can make in different brewing methods to to accommodate different roast levels. So um, when you when you're doing an espresso with with lighter roasted coffee. Obviously, the coffee is a bit more dense, um, so it's it's more difficult to actually extract all the goodness out of the cup, out of the coffee, and get a balanced cup. So you would want to use hotter water and a higher ratio of coffee, um, but also extended time. So anything about 95 degrees Celsius of water with your shot should be about 28 to 32 two seconds now. Peter, I know that's quite a bit more than you said, but um, this is with like really light roasts that people don't generally use for espressos. But uh, the darker you go, you can decrease the temperature down to anything between 88 to 90 degrees Celsius. Um, that's kind of just to help produce the, the extracting all the bitter aspects of the coffee because everything just extracts much faster with dark roast coffee because it's so brittle, so brittle and porous. Um, but the time of, of brewing will also be much less. So it's about 20 to 23, 20 to 23 seconds. So I think um, if, you, if you take a, a French press into consideration, brewing with hotter water, um, I think generally most people just take it directly off, off of boiling and, and, and pour it into the French press. I think most people won't really pick up the differences on the palate, but uh, maybe it's worthwhile to actually, when you have a darker rose, just, just leave it for a little bit to, to cool down and, and actually add it then, and maybe even shorten the, the brew time before you pour your cup. But that's all I have. <laughs> Thanks for that, Frederick. Guys, well, I think that then brings the third episode to conclusion i think it was a really insightful insightful episode and um yeah don't leave those french presses on the on the, <laughs> on the counter while you're carrying and uh, remember to sign those mountain registers cool thanks peter Pierre, yeah no, thanks guys i'm gonna yeah see you guys in the mountains one day <laughs> <laughs> Look, you can't say one day, hopefully soon. <laughs> soon. <laughs> cool, guys. Yeah. Cheers. Okay, great, guys. Cheers. Have a good, have a lucky evening. Bye. Thanks so much for joining on this week's episode of the Mountain Ground Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of the episodes, making sure that you stay caffeinated and keen for adventures.